In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. Psst. Hey, it's me, your barista. So you know how you come in almost every day for our cold foam coffee? Yeah, well, I might be putting myself out of a job by telling you this, but now there's an easy way to foam at home with new International Delight Cold Foam Creamer. With three new foaming flavors, French vanilla, sweet and creamy, and caramel macchiato, who could blame you if you stopped coming in altogether? Yeah, it's that foaming delicious. You're welcome. New International Delight Cold Foam Creamer, now in stores. It's foaming delicious. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. When we look at plants and animals and how they're responding, we can take some inspiration in that if there's a tiny lizard out there that is evolving in response to this crisis, then you know maybe we can change some of the behaviors that are bringing it about, right? I think there's some basic inspiration to be had. That's Tor Hansen, author of a book with the wonderful title, Hurricane Lizards and Plastic Squid. It's an exploration of the many ways plants and animals are responding to the way we humans are messing with their lives by changing the planet's climate. Some of the ways those plants and animals are adapting are in turn spelling trouble for us. But we began our conversation with the more immediate human consequences of what Tor calls global weirding and what's causing it. This is great because your communication is so clear and vivid that you you make me want to talk to you and find out how you do it. And it's also interesting because just before we went on, you were telling me that you had an example of global weirding that you lived through. Global weirding is becoming real for all of us, I think, and we've experienced it here in the Pacific Northwest, where I live, just in the last few days with extreme rains and flooding, and this is only a few months after we experienced record-breaking heat waves during the heat dome effect that, that stayed over the Pacific Northwest for days on end. And I think it's really an interesting example of how climate change is impacting our behaviors and our lives every day now, just the way it is for plants and animals in the wild. And I've I've noticed an interesting thing. Starting a couple of years ago, it was no longer said you can't confuse climate with weather. But now, as weather gets weirder and more extreme... I think I'm hearing more and more. Here's an example of climate change right in our face. Am I am I wrong about that observation? I think you're onto something. I mean, they say that climate is what you expect and weather is what you get. 
Uh, and yeah. I think more and more we're seeing the connections between real-life daily weather events and this long-term trend in climate change. And our tools for examining that relationship are getting better and better. So scientists, climatologists are more able to say just how likely particular trends in daily weather are being influenced by longer-term climate trends. And I guess what we can do about it as we become more aware, as you say, of the effect on our daily lives, what we can do about it kind of depends on our understanding of some of the basic stuff that's going on. We hear about CO2, but most of us don't really connect with CO2 as a bad thing. I mean, every time I go to a hospital and they take the plants out at night, (laughs) I think... I I exhale CO2 and the plants like that and they they exhale CO2 and I don't like that but otherwise everything seems to be okay with CO2. It, it's <laughs> fascinating, isn't it? But I had similar questions when I started really getting into this climate change research. I realized that I didn't really know all that much about CO2, the stuff that was making it all happen in the first place. So I really wanted to get my hands on some of this and try to understand that puzzle, why some CO2 is this global threat while other CO2 is benign. In fact, more than benign, it's a building block for life on Earth. And so what I did to get my head around it was start combing through the back reaches of our refrigerator with my young son in tow. And we were looking for examples of things that had ongoing fermentation in them. And we took out some... Uh, why? Let me, inter- let me interrupt for oh, a second. Yeah. Ferm- because of what? what? What does fermentation have to do with CO2? This takes us right back to how they discovered CO2 in the first place. It was discovered and first studied, really, over vats of uh, beer being brewed in these breweries. And there was a wonderful scientist in the 18th century named Joseph Priestley, who happened to live next door to a brewery, and he started doing all these experiments in this stuff, this invisible gas that he found floating over those vats. And what's going on in the vats, of course, is fermentation this slow microbial digestion. And like any other process of digestion, it produces waste products. Our digestion does too. Uh, And in this case, the waste includes alcohol for the beer, but it also includes a lot of CO2. And he was able to do all of these experiments. So we decided, my son and I, that we might be able to replicate this in the kitchen. And we tried it on yogurt, but there was nothing going there. We tried it on, <laughs> you know, a various things, the sour cream. It even said that there were probiotics, but they weren't alive anymore. And then we hit the jackpot and we found this big old jar of pickles, homemade pickles, that had been stewing in their own juices since the previous summer. It was far past time to throw them away. But for once, putting off that chore had really paid off. Because when we took off that lid, there was enough CO2 in the top to play around with. And the first thing we did was bring over a lit match. And it snuffed out as if we'd turned off a switch. 
and it was a, a thrilling moment of discovery, but it also helped clarify to me that distinction in that we know that making pickles is not causing climate change. <laughs> and we know that brewing beer is not clim- causing climate change, and nor is breathing. What we learned there was that the, the CO2 coming out of those pickles had come from our garden the previous summer. That's where the cucumbers picked it up. But by putting those cucumbers in a salty brine, we had slowed down their rotting. We'd slowed down their natural sort of decomposition by months and months. If we just left them in the compost in the garden, that CO2 would have been released months ago. But here it was slowed down in a pickle jar. And the whole key to climate change is the fact that some of these plants in nature don't rot. You can slow it down a lot more than a jar of pickles. You can stop it completely if vegetation gets buried and hidden under layers of sediment and rock. And that happens in boggy wetlands where layer upon layer of peat is formed. And it happens on the ocean floor when marine algaes die and mass and sink and get buried before they can decompose. And if those things stay buried, they turn into the fossil fuels. So what happens is now that we have extracted those, we're extracting millions and millions of years of stored carbon dioxide and releasing it all at once, which makes it very different from that carbon dioxide that is cycling naturally through the air all the time through plants and through our bodies. That's the natural carbon cycle. We have overwhelmed it by digging up all this ancient stored stuff and letting it go all at once natural gas and and petroleum and coal, all these things from that old ancient plant material. So once the ancient plant material that's been stored underground is unearthed and lit and the CO2 goes into the atmosphere, why is that bad? Even so much of it, why, why does so much of it harm the atmosphere? Well, this is fascinating, too, if we look at the history of it, because we talked about old Joseph Priestley and his vat of beer, but he really triggered a bunch of research into carbon dioxide. And there were people soon afterwards who learned that if you had this stuff in a jar or a a, a fairly primitive uh, device for storing gases and you put radiant heat into it, you know, from a, a lamp or a candle, any kind of radiant heat, that it would retain that heat longer than normal air. So it had this heat retaining quality. And as early as the 1890s, scientists realized that we were releasing enough of it through industrial activities so that that carbon dioxide would retain more heat in the atmosphere. So we've known that carbon dioxide and related gases were, you know, greenhouse gases warming the planet since the 1890s. But what's interesting about that study is it was done by a fellow named Arrhenius who lived in Sweden. And when he figured that out, he thought warming up the atmosphere by a few degrees would be a wonderful thing for snowy Sweden. And he thought this was a great (laughs) idea. Uh, Burn more coal because it's going to make uh, Sweden uh, uh, a more you know, favorable environment, we know now that it has led to all sorts of unfortunate consequences. And yet, what's so interesting in your book to me is you have many examples 
of species that adapt and seem at least for a time to escape the ill effects of global warming and climate change. For instance, the hurricane lizards, who feature prominently in the title of your book. And that's a quick adaptation, isn't it? It's really fascinating. And this is something that really inspired me to write the book in the first place. And that is, when we look out in nature, we realize that plants and animals are not passive bystanders to rapid change. When conditions change in their environment, they respond. And they do so in a number of ways. The hurricane lizards give us an example of something that I think even many scientists were surprised to find. And that is how fast evolution is being driven, in some cases, by changes in the climate. And this story comes to us from a great uh, scientist named Colin Donahue, who studies lizards down in the Caribbean. He was working in the Turks and Caicos Islands, and he'd gone out and he'd studied all these lizards, taken a bunch of measurements for a different study. He was studying how non-native rats were eating the lizards and that sort of thing. Uh, But what happened is a week or two after he finished that, a hurricane struck, or as he pointed out to me, actually it was two hurricanes back-to-back, Irma and Maria, and flattened that island. And his rat project was put on hold. All those questions would have to wait. But Colin realized he was in a perfect position to see if the hurricanes had had an effect. So he went right back and found himself in more or less a case of scientific deja vu. He was re-measuring and reconducting the exact same experiment he had done six weeks earlier. He took all the same measurements on the surviving lizards and realized that the survivors were the lizards that had large toe pads and strong front legs and short back legs. And it was something of a mystery until he conducted an experiment to try to understand how lizards behaved in hurricane force winds. He had a leaf blower. And he, he, set he brought up, a leaf blower with him on the plane down, he, down he to traveled, the islands. He traveled with a leaf blower and he told me that he had the darndest time explaining this to the customs officer when he was getting in. It's like, I need this leaf blower. Uh, this, this landscaping equipment to go on my vacation. Um, <laughs> and, you know, of course, then he's doing this right on the balcony of, this, of his hotel room. So I've always wondered what the people in the next room thought was going on next door. Uh, and so what was he doing with the leaf blower? Well, he's out there and he's got these lizards. And I should say ahead of time, no lizards were harmed. He had it set up so that all the lizards were were safe and he released them after the experiment. But he wanted to know what they did when the wind blew. So he put them on a dowel, on a stick that was similar in size to the sort of vegetation that they lived in outside. And then he turned on the leaf blower and he started to increase the speed of the wind up to hurricane force wind. And what happened is the first thing they did was scurry around to the lee side of the stick and hold on tight. And as the wind got stronger, their back legs would start to slip. And he has all of this on video. Uh, The back legs would slip and slip. And then finally they would let go and the front legs would be holding on for dear life while the back of the lizard and the tail were just flapping like a sail in the wind. And they'd hold on and hold on until he got the wind so strong that finally they they would slip off and land in this net that he had behind them. 
But that image and that process explained to him perfectly the numbers he'd seen in his data, because the large toe pads help them hold on. Toe pads are sticky. And the strong front legs give them more gripping power. And the short back legs reduce the drag on the lizard when they are flapping in the wind. And all those things combined give those lizards an edge in terms of surviving when the wind gets strong. He had measured survival of the fittest in action. So presumably the offspring of those lizards would have larger hands. So to answer that question, he needed more lizards and he needed more hurricanes. So he established a history of hurricanes. He worked with a climatologist for the whole Caribbean. Where had these strong storms been passing over time? And When he identified those places, he found a correlation. Wherever he looked at lizards in those places, they too had the larger toe pads and the stronger front legs. So in Ah. fact, those traits are what we call directional selection. They're being selected for overtime and changing the physical nature of those lizards as an adaptation to strong winds. Seems to me that another story that illustrates that, you have to tell me if I'm right about this, is how fast trees can move. Isn't that a surprise? Using a huge data set uh, from the U.S. Forest Service over decades and decades, all across eastern North America, some uh, scientists led by a fellow named Songlin Fei uh, looked at this data set and discovered that the trees were moving rapidly by kilometers and kilometers every decade. Faster, Mm. in fact, than even the same data uh, shows for some species of birds. So what's making them move? Because if an oak tree drops a seed, an acorn, it's only going to land a few feet from the tree. If it lands a few more feet every year, it's going to take a long time for that tree's offspring to, to move anywhere. So what's moving it? This was sort of a paradox for a lot of scientists when they were studying how trees had moved after the last ice age. It looked like you just can't get there from here. How were these trees moving so fast, oak trees in particular? And what they realized was it wasn't just gravity or a squirrel or some other rodent moving those acorns a few feet. They tracked in on, in this case, it was blue jays picking up acorns and moving them miles and miles, and then tucking them away to return to later, caching them someplace for winter. Well, blue jays sometimes forget where they put an acorn, or sometimes blue jays get eaten by a cooper's hawk before they come back to get their acorns. And that long-distance dispersal, in that case by birds, was moving the trees long distances. They're germinating and growing in the places that are becoming more and more conducive for them. And that is leading the edge of their range to move rapidly. When we come back from our break, Tor Hansen digs into the worrying aspects of how species are adapting to climate change. In some cases, whole ecosystems, networks of interconnected plants and animals, are beginning to fall apart. And some of those networks help feed us. Clear and Vivid can be downloaded for free because it's supported by our sponsors and by, as they say, people like you. 
But there are no people like you. You're you. We want to make sure you know about patreon.com slash clear and vivid. That's where if you love hearing from the extraordinary guests we have on our shows, you can become a patron and get early access to special videos. And at the highest tier, you can join me in our monthly get-together online. I think you'll find out that the listeners to our podcast are often as much fun to hear from as our guests. We're grateful to you all. Thank you. And don't forget to check out patreon.com slash clear and vivid. Disney Plus and Hulu are better together in the Disney Bundle with new movies and series. On Disney Plus, experience the full Taylor Swift The Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with new main show performances and acoustic collection. On Hulu, follow the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone in the award-winning film Poor Things. All of these and more streaming this month. Get the Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. Terms apply. See DisneyBundle.com for details. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Tor Hansen. One of the things that struck me about your writing in this book is that while one species might find itself able to take some kind of action responding to the environment, moving to a a cooler place on a mountain or something like that, it seems to put itself in trouble with the whole network that it's a part of. Something that it depends on to keep it reproducing suddenly can't help because it's not keeping up with it. I think you call this uh, mismatching. What is it? Time mismatching? Yeah, exactly. This is what we're really seeing a lot of, and something that does worry a lot of climate change biologists, in that not all species are responding in the same way or even at the same time to climate change. And when that happens, you start to see these ecological relationships, in many cases, begin to fray. Let's take, for example, pollination, one of the classic uh, sort of timing critical interactions in nature. You have to have the flowers open at the right time for the bees and other insects that pollinate them. And if you have flowers, for example, opening earlier and earlier in springtime, responding to warmer and warmer air temperatures, Mm. yet you have bees that nest in the ground where temperatures are warming more slowly, in some cases, those bees are still on the old schedule. And they run the risk then of being pulled apart in time, not in place, but in time from the flowers that they depend upon and that may be depending upon them. And those mismatches, those breakdowns of ecological relationships are one of the more subtle but more critical impacts of climate change happening right now in nature. I think until I read your book, I wasn't as clear about how dependent on bees we are how much we need them. 
the bees out in nature are our most important pollinators. So they're involved at the fundamental level of the food web, if you will, that we depend upon. Uh, and removing them or weakening their role in nature will have tremendous consequences. I read someplace, I can't remember if it was in your book or someplace else, that you tracked how much we depend on bees for a, a Big Mac. <laughs> this, I, this is a way to get a lot of curious stares in your local McDonald's. Is if you go in there, <laughs> as I did, and you order a, a Big Mac, and then you dissect it. And I had some reference books, and I had a pair of forceps and a hand lens to look at the small stuff. And I decided I was going to take that Big Mac apart and determine which parts of it were dependent upon bees and which were not. And so immediately things start disappearing, like the lettuce and the tomatoes, you know, that are bee dependent either for the development of the crops or for, uh, you know, the development of the seeds and, and the fruit itself. And then I lost out on, you know, a whole bunch of other things. The special sauce had to go because of all of the things that were in it that were bee dependent. I lost all the sesame seeds off the top of the bun. They all had to go. Uh, you know, at the end of this thing, I had this this pile of glop on one side, and the only thing really left on the uh, side that I could have eaten if there were no bees in the world were, you know, the uh, the hamburger patties themselves, because you can feed a cow upon grass, and the buns without sesame seeds, just the plain bun, no sauce or anything. Uh, uh, because, of course, the uh, grasses, uh, that uh, grain is wind-pollinated, so we don't need bees in that equation. So I still had something to eat, but it was a very, very dull meal. <laughs> I was really struck by this story that you told about the lizard that hides under a rock for shade when it gets too hot. What happens if he stays under the rock too long? Well, this is a great story, and it's an example of how you don't have to die from heat itself to be drastically affected by climate change. And this research comes from a great uh, herpetologist named Barry Sinervo, and he and colleagues had realized that there were fence lizard populations winking out in some of the hottest deserts of the American Southwest, where on the face of it, you might think that species would be well-prepared for a warmer world. It's so hot. Yeah. They're used to they it, seem, aren't they? They seem to like it. I know. But if you've ever tried to catch a fence lizard, which is how I spent parts of my childhood trying and failing, <laughs> uh, you'll notice that these bloody lizards scamper under a rock just as soon as you get your, your pounce and they're under the rock just like that. Uh, but it turns out that they use those rocks for a lot more than escaping young lizard enthusiasts. They're what <laughs> uh, scientists call heliotherms. They use the sun, the helio, uh, to thermoregulate, to control their body temperatures. So they always have to be close to a rock so they can cool down when they need to. So as the climate has warmed in places like the desert southwest, the lizards have responded by doing what they have always done on hot days. They spend more and more time in the shade. But that, of course, comes at a cost because the longer you are hiding under a rock to stay cool, the less time you have to go out 
and forage for food. And so what was happening in these populations, particularly for the uh, female lizards in those populations, there was a critical point, it turns out, after about four extra hours of hiding in the shade, if that happened, if they crossed that line during the day, then they weren't getting enough food. And they weren't able to, over time, build up the energy reserves in their bodies to reproduce, which means... As the climate is warming, some of those lizards are not breeding. And you really don't need the, the PhD in herpetology to figure out the long-term consequences of that. They weren't dying straight out from the heat. They were dying because their populations stopped producing baby lizards. That chain of events is something that we don't, can't possibly think of intuitively. It takes a scientist like you to point out the, the route to the extinction of that species. And it's yeah. vital that you tell us these stories so we can see what the connection is between just a little change in the weather and the death of a species. But yeah. very often when we hear about, you know, us ordinary people, we hear about the extinction of a little animal that, that we never heard of before. We wonder what role it plays in our lives. You're helping us understand that role. But sometimes I wonder, do we even care enough about our own species? <laughs> because it's a kind of a homemade experiment I have. It's not at all scientific. But very often at the dinner table, I ask the question, how long do we think our species will last? Scientists yeah. have told me the average length of a species, the average life of a species is about 2 million years. So we've been around only a few hundred thousand years. Do we have the good luck to last an average length of time? <laughs> it's a really excellent question. And I think about it in terms of something that we call in biology plasticity, which is the built-in, the inherent genetic capacity to adapt. And we see it in terms of behavior, we see it in terms of how our bodies respond. And, and Homo sapiens has a lot of plasticity, which is why we occupy really every continent now and why our populations are so large. We can live in a lot of different conditions. And we have accentuated that plasticity through our technologies by, by expanding our comfort zone really to the whole planet. Uh, so I think that our species may indeed have a long life in spite of the rapid change on the planet. What I think is truly at risk, however, is the lifestyle that we have become accustomed to mm. or that we aspire to in the developed world right? The creature comforts and the technologies and the abundance in some cases, or uh, we hope at least, of food and so forth, all of these sort of comforts and the way we live that, that rely upon high energy consumption, uh, those things, I think, are at risk. So as a species, I think we are flexible enough to roll with a lot of punches, but will uh, our future look like the present in terms of, of the comforts we have or aspire to, I think that is really an open question. And you bring up an interesting point when you mention the aspirations of the developed world. The, 
the other side of the world, the so-called developing world, yeah. is going to be hardest hit soonest yeah. by climate change. And that's going to have an effect on us. We still don't believe we're that connected that it'll have an effect on us, even though we're living through an example of that connectedness right now with the pandemic. But we don't believe it as far as climate change is concerned yet. That's why I say I really wonder if we actually care about our own species beyond. We're not very much aware of them except our grandchildren and our grandparents. Beyond that, it's a hazy future and. I, the kind of that that question I ask at the dinner tables is often the conversation stopper. <laughs> People don't want to think past the next generation or two. And one person even said, "What do I care? I won't be here." Right? Yeah. I mean, I it's, mean, I, it's very true. We have a very short-sighted focus in many cases, and I think that's one of the reasons that it's taken so long, even to get to the policy discussions that we need to have about climate change, let alone the policy responses. And my, my hope is that as we see you know, more and more immediate impacts in terms of these crazy weather events, that people will start to realize this is not so abstract. It affects us all. And I hope that in that regard, we will see a better response from individuals and then as a society. I hope we do see that. And if we do, as we do, as those of us become more and more aware of it, what can we do? What can ordinary people do who are not setting policy, who are not meeting in Scotland? Yeah. Yeah. In order to, and not meeting in Scotland in order not to set policy further. In order to avoid setting policy. Yeah. (laughs) No, it's, it's a great question. And we all, we all struggle with this. And I think that is one of the lessons that we learned from climate change biology, in that when we look at plants and animals and how they're responding, A, we can take some inspiration in that if there's a tiny lizard out there that is evolving in response to this crisis, then you know maybe we can change some of the behaviors that are bringing it about, right? I think there's some basic inspiration to be had. And also in the fact that you know, this biology going on doesn't make scientists necessarily worry less about the crisis. The responses are so widespread, in some ways it, you know, heightens the sense of threat. But it does help scientists to worry smart, to worry smarter, if you will, looking at the species that have some natural resilience and separating those from the ones that are most vulnerable so that we know Mm. how to apply limited resources, how to allocate research effort, conservation effort, policy decisions toward the species and ecosystems that need our help the most. And I think that resonates personally as well in that we need to know what to worry about right? It can seem overwhelming with this huge problem. So it is useful to know what the real threats are in nature and which things we can set aside for now, thinking those things are adapting well. Let's focus on the, on the true risks out there. So I think climate change biology is useful in that way. And when I put the question that you just asked to a, an eminent biologist uh, named uh, uh, Orion's, his last name, a uh, brilliant guy, he ima- answered immediately and he said, what can you do about climate change? What should you do? Everything you can. 
And I think that is a great way to look at it in that we see plants and animals doing everything they can in nature. And so in our daily lives, there are lots of things we can do from how we shop to how we drive to how we vote to whether or not we turn off the lights when we leave a room to how we dry the laundry, how we mow the grass. All of those small things really do matter and they do something bigger. And that is this, what we call in in science a positive feedback loop. I think when you take steps to help the planet and to reduce climate change, you feel a little better when you do it. Mm -hmm. And if you Mm -hmm. do something that makes you feel better, you want to do more of it. So as individuals, that cumulative power to feel better and do better for the climate, I think is what we need to truly change policy. Well, that you just inspired me. I hope anybody else listening got inspired too. We're coming to the end of our conversation, but we always end our talks with seven quick questions, mm-hmm. roughly having to do with communication. Are you, are you okay? You, you came? Absolutely. Let's do it. What do you wish you really understood? Oh, <laughs> wow. How much time do you have? Let's see. There are... <laughs> I'll put the one at the top of the list. There are a lot of answers to that question, but I'll tell you one that you may have heard from other biologists, and that is this. We are so accustomed to studying systems and nature that are degraded by human activity in some way, and sometimes drastically so. You know, most of the old growth forests are gone. Most of the prairie grasslands are gone. These ecosystems that we're trying to understand are already in a very different state than they would be uh, if we hadn't been messing with them for so long. And so I think something that I always long for when I'm doing field work and a question that's always occurred to me is what was this place like? Because I think there are so many relationships in nature that would be more clear to us now when we're, you know, if we could read the full book rather than trying to piece it all together from the few pages that are left. Great question. Second one, how do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? Uh, Well, you start, I think, I think you must start by telling them what facts they have right. (laughs) If you can can find some. If you can find some. I think, at least when I'm uh, having these conversations, and they happen even within my own family, I, I think it's really important to remember that you you don't need to agree on everything to agree on something. Mm. And so I always try to find the things that we agree on before we even begin to explore the disagreements. I think that's awfully good advice. Now, what's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? You know, I'll tell you, this is a bit off the wall, but years ago I wrote a book about feathers about how fascinating they are, their evolution and the biology of feathers, and then how we use them as people for many of the the same things. So I I was giving a series of lectures about this, and I was prepared for questions on those topics. And I will never forget it. I was at a bookstore with a big crowd, and I was talking about all this, and it came to the Q&A, and we went through a few questions. And then someone asked, what's your favorite feather joke? (laughs) 
<laughs> and it, it it caught me utterly flat-footed. I had, you know, uh, but I did answer. I mean, I answered, you know, the first thing that I could think of, which was a little bit risque. And the, the owner of the bookstore came out immediately and said, last question. Thanks for coming, folks. We're going to shut her down now. <laughs> Wait a minute. You had a feather joke? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So the, the feather joke is, what's the difference between sexy and kinky? Sexy is when you use a feather. And kinky is when you use the whole chicken. <laughs> so, so there's that's, a, that's a conversation good. stopper for you. If you yeah, well. if, <laughs> that shut her down right there. Well, that, next question. How do you stop a compulsive talker? Oh, my. That... That is a good question. I, fire alarm? I'm not sure. You know, I think you need you need help. You need a colleague. And I used to have this set up at, a, at an office where I worked where one of my colleagues would burst into the room if I was being out-talked and remind me of this urgent appointment that I was late for. You need a friend to get you out of that situation. How do you like to start a true conversation with someone next to you at a dinner table who you've never met before? Oh, gosh. You know, of course, you can talk about the food. That is a good one. I think sometimes, though, you can make a connection at the dinner table by, you know, something even even nonverbal that can break the ice and get things moving. And I, I, will, I will tell you a story this is that I learned from my mother, who was at a dinner party once, where that sort of, it was hard to get those conversations going. And oh. it was kind of an awkward, you know, event. And she finally got so fed up with it that she reached out onto her plate and she picked up a single green pea and she tapped the shoulder of the guy sitting next to her and she held out her hand. And of course, you know, if someone holds out their hand, you, you know, you, what are you going to give me? And, and so she put the pee in his hand and she said, pass it on. <laughs> and so he turned to the person next to him and they passed this pee all the way around the table. And by the time it got back to my mom, everyone was laughing so hard that it, it, it transformed the evening and they had wonderful conversations and a great event. So that would be, that would be my uh, solution in that awkward situation. I'm going to the next dinner party with a pocket full of peas. I'm telling <laughs> you, it's a, it's a great idea. Okay, next one. What gives you confidence? Confidence. You know, that's a, it's an excellent question. I, you know, I don't always have confidence, but I am pretty stubborn. Uh, <laughs> so in, a, in addition to being a stubborn, a stubborn old Scandahoovian, I think something that gives me confidence is family. In, in a way, and that whatever I'm out doing professionally, uh, you know, I, I have a, a solid backdrop to go home to, you know, with my wife and my child. And I'm going to get a hug at the end of the day. And that helps me get through an awful lot. Good. Last, last question. What book changed your life? Well, there are two books, actually, if I can fudge a little bit. And I think they came out the same year, which would have been in the mid-90s. And the first one was Guns, Germs, and Steel. And the other was The Song of the Dodo. I remember thinking to myself, that's everything I ever think about. 
all mm-hmm. wrapped up together. I mean, it's biology and the impact of, of in the environment on human societies and you know all of these things that I spend my, my professional life thinking about seemed wrapped up in those books and I found them utterly inspiring. That's great. This has been such a fun conversation and I have to tell you, you personally inspired me. So thank you. Oh, thank you, Alan, for having me on. I admire your work, and it's just a pleasure chatting with you. That's kind. Thanks. Hope I talk to you again soon. Yeah, likewise. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Tor Hansen is an independent conservation biologist who lives on an island with his wife and son in the Pacific Northwest. In addition to his recent book, Hurricane Lizards and Plastic Squid, he's written books on bees, feathers, seeds, and forests, as well as a popular illustrated children's book, Bartholomew Quill, A Crow's Quest to Know Who's Who. His website is torhansen.net. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our sound engineer is Erica Huang, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Mary Roach, an author of hugely entertaining but strictly factual books with one-syllable titles, Gulp, Bonk, Stiff, Spook, and Grunt. And her latest continues the tradition, Fuzz, subtitled, When Nature Breaks the Law. Now, that's not nature's laws, but our own often foolish laws when wildlife conflicts with our life. When you think about it, and I did think about it, They commit manslaughter, breaking and entering, home invasion, jaywalking, littering, trespassing. Obviously, they don't know. Their their laws are written for us. So for me, it was more of a fun and inviting way to talk about human-animal conflict, because human-animal conflict is what the professionals call it, and it's kind of, it makes it sound a little dull. So I I thought it would be fun to present it in, in, in the form of crimes and criminals. Mary Roach and her favorite animal criminals next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalder.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>